Before I start this week's episode, just the usual quick note of thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the image, the cover art of the podcast, Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's get on with it. And welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been an interesting week this week. Good range of different stories. Some blasts from the past as well. We'll look at a decent range of sanctions news with some of the most compelling research to date on the impact on the Russian economy of the range of sanctions which have been imposed globally. More updates on the imminent implementation of the Register of Overseas Entities. A few fraud stories some market abuse news which is a bit of a blast from the past and some news on data sharing let's start with russian sanctions starting in the uk the range of sanctions content is genuinely slowing and it's kind of having to pick over it really to get anything interesting to say first off the office of financial sanctions implementation has issued a license relating to insurance payments the license permits UK insurers to make return payments to frozen UK bank accounts for the payment of funds due as a result of a claim made pursuant to the permitted payments or as a result of an overpayment, and UK-designated persons may receive return payments from UK insurers into a frozen UK bank account. Now, this is quite an exception, but it is subject to strict conditions relating to the provision of details and supporting evidence being provided to Her Majesty's Treasury to see that the licence isn't abused by anyone who might wish to try and avoid the sanctions. On the further issue of sanctions in the UK, OFSI has announced an update to its general guidance. The frankly excellent, it's the only word for it, sanctions website, which is maintained by Maya Lester QC and Michael O'Kane, reports the new licensing applications process. The Office for Sanctions Implementations, Financial Sanctions Implementations, commits to processing new applications as soon as practicable with a scheme of prioritising at times of high demand. Now, let's go back in time. One wonders whether this has anything to do with the staffing issues at the uh, Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation. You may recall that in episode 12 of the Financial Crime Weekly, we reported on the evidence given to the Treasury Select Committee by Giles Thompson, the director, and Christopher Watts, the deputy director of OFSI. They said that as the unprecedented sanctions were being imposed on Russia, it had only 70 staff, with only six or seven ever able to advise on queries from those affected, but that it was, Hosanna, in the process of recruitment. It was estimated before the committee that they would not reach 100 staff until April 2023. Now, as I sit here, that's still a good eight months away. This week's licensing update, therefore, is a very real, perhaps a very real and practical example of the consequences of understaffing at such a crucial time. This next story is a bit of a unique one since it relates to the sanctioning of a pro-Russian-British vlogger, someone called Graham Phillips, whom The Guardian reports has been accused of being a conduit for pro-Russian propaganda. 
Phillips, you may recall, interviewed Aidan Aslin, a British member of the Ukrainian armed forces who had been captured by Russian forces during the siege of the port city of Mariupol. The targeting of media outlets of either the Russian regime or those sympathetic to it has been a common, if less high-profile, thread of the sanctions regimes imposed globally. That's it for the UK. Let's look beyond the shores. In the EU this week, the European Council announced an extension of the restricted measures targeting the economy of the Russian Federation. The extension to 31st January 2023 covers the sanctions regimes in force since the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, as well as the sanctions imposed following Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Now, this next story is an interesting one. It's a little bit under the radar. But there's one tidbit in it which is quite useful. On the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February 2022, the Russian bank VTB sold its 46.3% stake in the Cyprus-based bank RCB to other investors of that bank. Well, this week, Elizabeth McCall who's a member of the supervisory board of the European Central Bank. Now, we've mentioned her a lot in previous weeks. She seems to be the main media personality who's out there for the ECB. Anyway, she was interviewed this week by uh, Bernd Neubacher of the Zeitung, the German financial markets daily, and she was asked about the sale. The sale was made without obtaining prior qualifying holding approval from the European Central Bank, and Neubacher asked whether RCB would be sanctioned as being in breach of the relevant regulations. While McFall, understandably, would not be drawn on individual banks, she did comment that in every case the applicable rules will always be applied. be interesting to see how that one turns out, actually, so keep your eye on that one. Now, since the sanctions have been imposed on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine, there's been a significant degree of claim and counterclaim as to the impact of the sanctions on the Russian economy. Indeed, I've tried to stay clear of these stories because of the unreliability of it all, especially since the Russians, as we reported on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast a few weeks ago, the Russians have stopped releasing information necessary to make an informed assessment of the impact on the economy. I've rather contented myself with the fact that the sanctions are having an impact and that those suggesting otherwise are either compromised or failing to keep up. However, this week I've decided to step forward and mention a piece of research that was published on the Social Science Research Network, which is basically an academic papers database, which is open access. You can get, get access to it if you want. Uh, I'm going to give honourable mention to a paper, paper by Sonnenfeld and others, which comes out of Yale, entitled Business Retreats and Sanctions Are Crippling the U.S. Economy. The paper does pretty much what it says on the tin and provides a desperately bleak picture of the state of the Russian economy. It concludes that Russian imports have largely collapsed. Russian domestic production has come to a complete standstill with no capacity to replace lost businesses products and talent, and Russia has lost companies due to a general business retreat from Russia, representing up to 40% of its gross domestic product. 
Putin's response, the article comments, is an unsustainable fiscal and monetary intervention, sending the government budget into deficit and reducing foreign currency reserves. In terms of a little horizon scanning, the image is even more aggressively stark, providing that, quote, there is no path out of economic oblivion for Russia as long as the allied countries remain unified in maintaining and increasing sanctions pressure against Russia, end quote. I suppose ultimately it becomes a question of how much of this all the parties concerned are willing to take, both from Russia in terms of the economic harm and the international community in terms of maintaining a united front on sanctions. That's it for sanctions. Let's skip away from that now and move and look at money laundering. Money laundering this week, it's kind of bits and pieces. The main stuff is in relation to the Register of Overseas Entities. We'll start with the Financial Action Task Force, which has updated its consolidated assessment ratings as of the 21st of July 2022. While in the UK, there have been a number of statutory instruments published which update the existing money laundering regulations 2017. I looked at this in the special. Basically, they're updating the regime operating in the UK to take account of things like crypto assets. But we looked at that in the special anyway. However, the big news on money laundering this week, certainly in the United Kingdom, is the imminent going live of the Register of Overseas Entities on the 1st of August 2022. In terms of what has happened specifically, there's been a flurry of activity in this area. First, there have been legislative changes made to support the creation of the Register and Companies House has been a busy little bee too. First, it has published detailed guidance on how to register an overseas entity and how to inform it about beneficial owners, it, that is, um, Companies House. And secondly, it has published its Agent Assurance Codes guidance. In order for an overseas entity to be registered, its beneficial owners or managing officers must be verified beforehand. A UK-regulated agent or relevant person must undertake that verification. To do this, the agent must obtain an assurance code from Companies House before they can verify or file on the entity's behalf. This guidance supports that element of the register. In related news, the membership of the major professional body which will be affected by this change, namely the Law Society, uh, has also been issued with guidance from, as I said, the Law Society. So compliance professionals can go to bed all excited on the 31st of July 2022, or ROE Eve, (laughs) as it might become known, and wake up on the 1st of August 2022, hoping that they're on the nice list and not the naughty list. Right, that's it for money laundering. Let's turn our attention to a bit of fraud that's reared its head this week. The Crown Prosecution Service has been having a, a bit of a blowing of its own trumpet, having highlighted a few fraud convictions. First, four people were convicted um, at Preston Crown Court of committing fraud and various offences relating to money laundering in relation to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency worth £21 million. They'll be sentenced on the 9th of September this year. In the second case, the CPS announced sentences were handed down in relation to a boiler room fraud worth nearly £14 million. Boiler room is a classic form of fraud, and it's interesting to see that this is clearly still going on, even though there are other options available to fraudsters. Notably, with cryptocurrency piquing a lot of fraudsters' interest, there's still classic fraud like boiler room fraud going on. Anyway, 
The participants in this fraud were sentenced to a total of either 15 years imprisonment or issued with licenses. In kind of vaguely related news to this, it's just a prosecuting agency, this serious fraud office has published its annual report and accounts for 2021-2022. In terms of headline figures, 43 active cases are open and 58 have been closed, with a current active caseload of 130. In terms of corporate offences of bribery and corruption, the report highlights two guilty pleas, Petrofac Limited, which was ordered to pay a total of £77 million by way of confiscation order fines and costs towards uh, the, F uh, the SFO, and the other was GPT Special Project Management Limited, which pleaded guilty to one count of corruption. It was ordered to pay a total of £30 million comprised of a confiscation order fines and costs. In terms of money, £105.5 million was paid in fines and penalties, including costs awarded to the SFO through deferred prosecution agreements, and £45 million was recovered against financial orders. If you want to take a look at the annual report and accounts for 2021-22, they are on the SFO website. Now, in news, which has been something of a recurring theme in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, bankruptcy restrictions have been placed on an individual who claimed £50,000 as a bounce-back loan under the government's COVID-19 recovery scheme, despite the fact his business had never traded. We talked about this in terms of joined-up thinking needed between different agencies when this scheme was implemented to say, well, is this business legit? And this is an example of that lack of joined-up thinking. Anyway, bankruptcy restrictions make it an offence, for example, not to disclose status as a person subject to bankruptcy restrictions to a credit provider if you wish to get credit of £500 or more, or to carry on business in a different name from the name in which you were made bankrupt. The bankrupt must disclose to those with whom they wish to do business the name or trading style under which they were made bankrupt. The order will run until the 20th of June 2032 and efforts are being made to recover the funds in the case. Now, of related interest to this fraud context, only this time it's civil fraud, the Courts and Tribunal Judiciary website has published the text of a speech given by Judge Mark Pelling QC on the subject of issues in cryptocurrency fraud claims. There are a number of interesting thoughts provided in the speech, especially around the practical problems associated with civil litigation concerning cryptocurrencies. These focus principally around identifying the perpetrator and the perpetrator's jurisdiction, for while the victim is often in England, and England or Wales, the same jurisdiction for the purposes of the civil law, the perpetra perpetrators tend to be located outside the jurisdiction that is outside England and Wales. There are parallel problems in bringing an action against any form of cyber criminal, frankly, particularly where hacking or ransom claims are concerned. The speech also provides an interesting narrative on the typology for such fraud, which is certainly worth looking at. And I always think it's useful to provide a typology because they provide a good basis, they form a good basis for any education scheme where you're trying to educate people in how to avoid becoming the victim of any sort of fraudulent activity. 
These are all important issues which need to be addressed by policymakers, though that may be more easily said than done. Uh, the reason they need to be addressed by policymakers is that financial crime of this sort is on the increase. And though this is a civil context, the same or similar facts can give rise to both a criminal or a civil action. Anyway, there's an interesting takeaway from the speech, nice quotation here, on the scale of the problem. It's noted that, and this is a direct quote, cyber currency fraud claims have shown a steady uptick in volume over the last 12 to 18 months. Now, the next bit, the final bit, I wasn't too sure in which context to discuss this story, but here, uh, following a story about crypto civil fraud seems as good a place as any, the Law Commission of England and Wales has announced a consultation on the law relating to digital assets, with the Commission commenting that despite changes which have been made to accommodate this new form of property, further work remains to be done. Responses should be received by the 4th of November 2022, and the consultation paper is available on the Law Commission's website. Now, a little bit on market abuse. Don't normally cover much on market abuse because it tends to go a bit more under the radar than I might like. But this is an interesting case. If you think back four years or so now, the case of Carillion uh, PLC, which is an outsourcer, it was providing services to many different organisations and so on. It collapsed in January 2018 with debts of a staggering seven billion pounds. Now, against the background of that collapse, three of its former executives, former Chief Executive Richard Housen and former Finance Directors Richard Adam and Zafar Khan, have been given notice by the Financial Conduct Authority that it intends to fine them for market abuse. The fines, totalling around £850,000, will be levied because the FCA conducted. Each was aware of the deteriorating expected financial performance within Carillion UK's construction business and the increasing financial risks associated with it. However, despite this, they failed to make the board and the audit committee aware, resulting in a lack of proper oversight. Now, all three individuals have indicated that they will refer the decision to the Upper Tribunal Tax and Chancery Chamber, used to be called the Financial Services and Markets Tribunal in the olden days, which will conduct a de novo review of the decision made by the FCA, uh, meaning that the tribunal can look at the decision afresh without the need, for example, for any of the parties to show that the Regulatory Decisions Committee made a mistake in law, or erred in law, or otherwise in reaching its decision. A worthwhile footnote to make to the decision is that the FCA said that Carillion would have been fined almost £38 million. But frankly, that was a largely symbolic statement because the company is insolvent and it's in liquidation. Okay, final bits this week. An important updated development on data collaboration in the fight against serious organised and financial crime. In 2019, the United States and the United Kingdom signed an agreement between both governments on access to electronic data for the purpose of countering serious crime, what was known as the Data Access Agreement. Well, this week it was announced that it will come into force on the 3rd of October 2022. The release provides... The entry into force of the 
Data Access Agreement will start a new era of cooperation between the United States and the United Kingdom, bringing forward a renewed commitment to tackling the threat of serious crime. The agreement allows investigators better access to data to combat serious crime. Data sharing is a crucial aspect of the fight against financial crime. However, it does need to be balanced. A need to be balances in place to ensure that any data grab is not over-inclusive, rather that it's targeted and all that is necessary to achieve the objective. The agreement commits to this, including that human rights and freedoms are protected by the agreement. Now, I do wonder about this. Is this statement worth the paper that it's written on, given the threats which have been made to the Human Rights Act in recent weeks? We'll leave it there to allow the government to show its hand by its actions rather than its rhetoric. And finally this week, the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax has issued a press release about a debate it secured in the uh, United Kingdom House of Commons earlier uh, this week on the general issue of combating economic crime. Now, you may recall in June this year that there was a Financial Crime Weekly special edition which focused on their manifesto. The all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax produced a manifesto, a financial crime manifesto, what needed to be done in order to fight financial crime. This debate was secured by the co-chairs of that all-party parliamentary group, and they said that there was broad support during the course of the debate for the proposals made in that manifesto. There was a broad consensus that resources in the fight against economic crime are not at the levels that they should be in order to combat the threat posed by financial or economic crime. Now, there's a striking statistic in the press release which was published to highlight what had happened, that roughly 40% of crime committed in the UK is economic crime, yet only 0.8%, so less than 1% of the resources in staff hours are dedicated to tackling it, that is economic crime. Now, the pressure which the all-party parliamentary group can bring to bear is significant. I don't doubt that for a moment. And the government has indicated variously, and we've discussed this in the Financial Crime Weekly in previous weeks, they've indicated a willingness to respond to the issue of the shortcomings which exist in the fight against economic crime. But it's unlikely that anything contrary will be achieved anytime soon, because the government has to get over its current navel-gazing. Of course, it's looking for a new leader. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. You can subscribe if you want to wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back, all being well, next week.